0: It's a joy to see you again, my brother. And uh, last time I was here, the crowd was a little bit bigger. I must confess, that was a little bit more fun. Nevertheless, I really believe that God can minister through a microphone, a camera lens, a computer screen, and computer speakers, and he can still speak to human hearts. So praise the Lord for that. The technology in this case is being used for probably the best purpose, right? Um, what a beautiful song. Thanks for leading us. That's uh, that really is honestly we use this word classic that is a classic timeless song probably one of my favorite songs of all time really god has his hand on that song all right let's take a moment and speak to the author of the text we're going to be looking at john chapter one just to give you a heads up there but let's pray father thank you for loving us so much that you sent the very best your son the sinless savior, Lord Jesus Christ, to come to this sin-saturated earth, to pay the price for the likes of us. There is no way we deserve any of this. It is all sheer grace. And so we just wanna pause to say thank you. We're humbled by your grace and your love. And what a privilege we have Whether we're watching through the screen or whether we're here in person, what a privilege we have in this land to still worship you in freedom. We do not want to take this uh, privilege we have lightly. We are grateful for it. We do pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the land and in other countries where they're paying uh, probably a deeper price than we are. We ask for your mercy upon them. We pray that you would give them holy boldness and I pray that for each one of us that we would have opportunities, even in these difficult times, to shine for you, to speak a word of truth, to share the gospel, to live it out, to encourage brothers and sisters, and to introduce others to faith in you, Lord Jesus. And so we choose to worship you now with our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, our priorities, and our very lives our time, talent, and treasures, all are yours. We want to glorify you, and especially as we think about the birth of Jesus Christ during this time of year, I pray that our hearts would be sensitive to those who have needs, and that you would use each one of us to be your hands and your feet, as it were, to be a blessing to others. And so guide our thoughts as we attempt to worship you through your word. We pray this, In the matchless name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen, amen. Amen. John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses uh, 14 through 18, and I want you to imagine somebody approaching you and asking you what foundational doctrine is being described and how you would answer. I'm going to read two quotes. Imagine somebody reading these quotes to you and asking you what foundational doctrine is being described. Now, I'm a theology teacher, but I'm not going to grade anybody here, and those of you on the other side of the camera, I'd have to send you the test through the mail, I think, or email. (laughs) But anyway, uh, I'm going to read these quotes, and don't let the first one give you a headache. Here it is. He who never began to be, but eternally existed, and who continued to be what he eternally was, began to be what he eternally was not. You say, well, that's the doctrine of obfuscation. What on earth? What did that preacher just say? I'm not sure what I just said. Well, here's another quote, uh, and this should clarify it, I hope. This is from an old Latin saying. It goes like this. I am what I was, that is God. I was not what I am, that is a man. I am now called both, that is both God God and man. What foundational doctrine is being described? Answer, the Incarnation, right? That's what we're celebrating. This particular text, the focus of it really is very simple and yet so profound, and that is the Word became flesh. The Word, Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh. And that is an awesome doctrine, an awesome historical fact And it has many implications. And I want to explore with you, what are the effects of the word becoming flesh? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. And so let's look at the first effect of the word becoming flesh. And it's simply this. And that is, since he took on flesh, the word dwelt among us. The word dwelt among us. Now, I want you to look with me at the text. We're in John chapter 1. I'm picking up at verse 14, where John records, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I hope you can see where I'm getting my sermon points from. It's right from the text. I don't make this stuff up. I'm not that creative, and I'm safe when I stay on the text, right? And so, the Word dwelt among us. Now, it's interesting because verse 14 really links back to verse 1. I'm going to read them consecutively, so go to 1-1. It says, in the beginning, now, by the way, for the Jewish listener, they would expect in the beginning, God, right? Genesis 1-1, God created, and he is implying here that Jesus is deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, get ready, cult members, listen up. For anybody who's out there who might be into an occult, uh, listen carefully. The Word, that's Jesus, was God. Now, go to verse 14, and the Word became flesh. He's further elaborating on verse 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 is really a key verse because it's really the climax of verses 1 through 13. In verses 1 through 13, John pretty much is laying out the uh, themes that he'll be covering throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, just to summarize, he gives evidences in 1 through 13 that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. He says Jesus is the Eternal One. He's the Creator. He's the Light. He's the Redeemer. He, Jesus, is God. And yet, He is man. Bell says this, The Incarnation is the bridge between a transcendent deity and the insignificance of man. Jesus is the bridge. And so again, looking at verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh. That is, the Word assumed human nature in its completeness. Jesus was human just like us, except for one major difference, and that is sin. He does not have, and did not have, and does not have, and will never have this defect of sin. And so... He took on a human soul and a human body and assumed the condition of human weakness with all of its limitations. He was liable to weakness, but dear friend, not to sin. In fact, he came to solve the sin problem. Christ never ceased to be God and therefore he could not sin. However, since the time when the word became flesh, he never ceased to be man. From that time to this time, he is man, he still has that crucified body. In John 8:40, Jesus said, "You are seeking to kill me." Notice how he describes himself, a man who has told you the truth. Jesus describes himself as a man. You say, "Well, that's pretty obvious to me. I'm a Christian." Well, it's not obvious to some people. In fact, John was fighting a heresy whereby many asserted that Jesus was a phantom or a ghost or some kind of a spirit, but was not a genuine human being. And so that raises a question, and that is, why did Jesus have to become a man? You're asking some great questions this morning, I appreciate that. In Hebrews chapter 2, if you want it for your notes, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, we get two reasons at least, and there's more. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. All right, so we have flesh and blood, we're human. Jesus took on flesh and blood. The question still remains, why did he do such? Two reasons here. First of all, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, who's that? That is, he says, the devil. Jesus came to this earth, wrapped himself in flesh. One reason is to render the devil powerless. There's a second reason, and that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That would be all humanity, right? He came to set us free from the fear of death. That is to say, dear friend, in the ultimate sense, if you know Christ as Savior, if he's living in you, you do not have to fear death. I know humanly, if, God forbid, we got in an accident and we were about to die, we might be afraid. That's the human condition. I understand that. But deep within our heart of hearts, if you know Christ as Savior, there is no fear of death. Because the worst that can happen to you as a Christian is that you are sent same day, express mail, to eternal bliss. And that's not so bad if you think about it that way, Right? So the one who is our leader, the one who we love more than anybody else, the Lord Jesus Christ, took Satan's most powerful weapon, absorbed his most powerful sting, which is death, and stood right back on his feet and said, all right, Satan, what else do you got? He defanged the devil, if you know what I mean. And so in that sense, there's really nothing to fear, right? Don't lose sight of that. Now for John, the author of this letter, the incarnation is an extremely significant doctrine to him. As I said, he was battling heresy. I'll give you some examples. He wrote, of course, the letters of John, right? So in 1 John 4, verse 2, he says against these heretics, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is the incarnation, is from God. 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, if John were here, he would say to deny the incarnation is heresy because you're left with something other than the Son of God. And to put your faith in that misconception is deadly, eternally deadly. So back to verse 14, and the word became flesh. You say, can you explain how that works? I have no idea. I believe it. Uh, in fact, a scholar way brighter than me put it this way. To explain the exact significance of that word became, the word became flesh, in this sentence is beyond the powers of any interpreter. I appreciate his honesty and his humility. It's a mystery how God did it. We don't get the how. we were just given the what. We know the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. But beyond that, it's a virgin birth. Beyond that, the mechanics of it are not explained. I believe it. I believe a lot of things I cannot explain. I get on airplanes. I don't know all the laws of aerodynamics, but I know it goes up and it's going to come down. Hopefully it's going to come down the right way, and I trust that. And I get on that plane, right? And so, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. And there's the imagery there of the Old Testament tabernacle. For your notes, if you want it, he, uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, 258. God says, and let them construct a sanctuary for me. Why? That I may dwell among them. Does that sound familiar? You see, God delights to dwell with his people. Jesus Christ left his celestial throne. He left the sinless environment, the perfect environment of heaven, so that he may enter this sin crazed world and live with the likes of us. It's pretty humbling, isn't it? What a magnificent love. You see, the word dwelt among us. And it's an amazing, an amazing condescension. And as I think about myself, I have to ask, are you and I willing to surrender our privileges for the sake of others, the way the Lord did? He came down here. That's a step downward like we cannot fathom. Are we willing to connect with people right where they are. This is a time of uh, struggle for many, probably for all of us, but some to even greater degree. Time of sadness. I heard recently of someone, uh, their their mom died. They were not allowed in the hospital. They had to watch her die via video. And that's the way they had to say goodbye. I, I don't know if I can think of anything sadder than that. And so there are a lot of people today sobbing in the sea of sorrow, a lot confused and in fear, wandering in the wilderness of worry, um, wondering what's up and what's down. And the question is, will I, will you, step out of our comfort zone to serve these hurting people? As I say, we all have it pretty rough, but let's be honest, some have it a lot worse than we do. And here's Jesus, the one who loves us, the one who understands our condition probably better than we do. He's coming with a remedy, and he comes down to this earth, the word Became flesh. And so we're asking, well, what are the effects of the word becoming flesh? We've seen already one effect is the word dwelt among us. But there's another effect, and that is the word dispensed grace to us. The word dispensed grace to us. Now, if you look at 14, right in the middle there, it's actually a parenthetical statement. I actually put parentheses in my Bible. I'm not saying you should, but that's how I think it goes. It's the phrase where he says, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now, this refers to the divine glory exhibited in Jesus' earthly ministry. He did manifest glory even while he was on earth. For example, John chapter 2, verse 11, remember the wedding at Cana? It says, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory in Luke 9 verse 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. This is on the mount of transfiguration. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And Peter writing his letters so many years later and he's reflecting upon that time when Jesus was on earth, the mount of transfiguration. He says this. He says that Jesus received honor and glory from the Father. 2 Peter 1:17. Now, such glory is only fitting for God's one and only unique Son. There's a very special category for Him. And we need to keep certain words up there, otherwise they get dragged down in the dirt, if you know what I mean. Such is the word awesome. Is Jesus awesome or is this hot dog with all this relish awesome? Which one is it? Let's reserve that for Him, okay? We need these words, otherwise we've got to come up with new ones because there's a special category for this unique Son of God. In John eight fifty four, Jesus said, "'It is my Father who glorifies me.'" Now, that was all parenthetical. Here's how I think it reads. If you take the parentheses out, verse 14, "'And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth.'" The whole of God's gracious plan of salvation was made known by Christ. The whole truth about redemption came when Christ revealed himself as the true sacrificial lamb of God. Wiersbe, he's with the Lord now, he was a pastor to pastors, you may have heard that name, says this, grace without truth would be deceitful and truth without grace would be condemning. And you see the word dispensed grace to us because he's just that awesome. Look at verse 15. And now I think this verse is actually parenthetical. John testified about him. It's kind of, he's giving a side note here. This is John the Baptist he's referring to. John the Apostle is referring to John the Baptist parenthetically here. John the Baptist testified about Jesus and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, even though Jesus was born six months after John, meaning John's actually a little bit older than Jesus, about a half a year, Jesus surpasses John in greatness because he is eternal. If you think about it, and we celebrate Christmas, right? But that's just when Jesus, who essentially is a spirit, adds on flesh, right? But if you think about Jesus as a spirit, he was active in the Old Testament. He was around before there was a place to walk. There was no space until he created it. He was around before the clock was ticking. He is eternal. So therefore, he's greater than John, even though John is a little bit older than him. In fact, John owes his very existence to Jesus, right? So Jesus was really gracious in allowing John to be his forerunner. You see, the word dispenses grace to us. This is what he does because he's gracious and he's awesome. So in verse 16, John says, picking up now from verse 14, look at the last part of verse 14 again, you'll see the connection, full of grace and truth. Then he continues, verse 16, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. He's just piling it and piling it on. So for of his fullness, we have all received, full of grace and truth. So there's no need for any believer to go lacking spiritually. If you're lacking in any way, please don't blame God, because he lavishes his grace on us. He gives us gifts. He gives us all sorts of resources. He amply supplies grace for all of our spiritual needs. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, it says, my grace is what? Sufficient for you. So what is he saying? You've got all the grace you need and then some. As John says, grace upon grace you see it there verse 16 and indeed grace upon grace jesus inexhaustible grace proves that he's of a higher rank than john the baptist obviously you see the word dispenses a never-ending shower of fresh grace to each of us niv paraphrases it says one blessing after another i like the grace idea a little bit better but i get what they're saying there verse 17 for the law was given through Moses. Every sacrifice was an expression of the grace of God. But the law was preparatory in character. A shadow of things to come. Exodus 34.6, one example. 34.6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed... Now, this is a self-description of God. You know it's got to be accurate, right? The Lord, the Lord God... Compassionate, what? There's compassion in the Old Testament? And gracious, what? There's grace? I thought we were living in the age of grace. But that was also the age of grace for those who understood. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Verse 17 again, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus obviously is greater than Moses. Paul says in Galatians 3... But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now, tutors, if they're worth their salt, that's a good thing, really. And the law is a good thing. There's nothing bad about the law. If there's a defect, it's in us and our response to the law. But it teaches us about Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And this is part of how he freed us, right? We said he came to take the power away from the devil and to free us from fear. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In Jesus' case, we can say who hangs on a cross. The Mosaic Law was certainly true, but the truth of Christ emancipates the believer from bondage to sin. The short version is Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. A scholar from days gone by, Ryle says this, Jesus came full of the gospel of grace. In contradistinction to the burdensome requirements of the ceremonial law, he came full of truth, of real, true, solid comfort in contradistinction to the types and figures and shadows of the law of Moses. In short, he says, the full grace of God and the full truth about the way of acceptance were never clearly seen until the word became flesh, dwelt among us on earth, opened the treasure house, and revealed grace and truth in his own person. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you, like me, have been lavished, lavished with the grace of God over and above and so there's no lack on god's end think about it our prayers have been answered i mean that's good enough right the spirit of god indwells us we have experienced supernatural peace we have been protected up to this very day i'm in my 60s now god has kept me i have no idea how many near accidents i've missed on how many years i've been driving and Airplanes and buses and trains and cars. We've been protected. We've heard God speak through His Word. We can do that at any time. Right now, Jesus is whispering your name in His Father's ear. He intercedes for us. That's one of His high priestly ministries right now. He's not just sitting in heaven doing nothing, He's interceding on our behalf. Some have had the privilege of leading others to faith in Jesus Christ. We have the joy of fellowship. And on and on and on I could go. These are all due to the grace of Jesus Christ. So the question I have to ask it, have we thanked him lately for his grace? And are we being gracious to others? It shouldn't stop with us. He's been so gracious to us, we should turn around then and splash that on other people, right? Within a six-foot distance, of course. The Word became flesh. Now what are the effects of the Word becoming flesh? That's what we're exploring here. We've seen already that the Word dwelt among us and the Word dispensed grace to us. But here's another effect, and that is the Word disclosed God to us. The Word disclosed God to us. Look at verse 18, no one has seen God at any time the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. For your notes, Exodus 33:18. 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take my hand away. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see, Moses saw only the afterglow of divine glory. It's kind of like at night if you could see a comet way up there in the sky and you just see the tail end passing by. It's kind of like that. Anything more than that, Moses would die instantly. And so would we. In our present state, we couldn't take the holiness of God. You see, he didn't see God's essence. That would have been it for him. In fact, logically, think about it. First Timothy one seventeen, It says, The king, eternal, immortal, hear it, Invisible, hello, how can you see an invisible God? The only God. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He, Jesus, has seen the Father. Who is this Jesus? He says, verse 18, the only begotten God. Now, why did I emphasize that? Because that's what the Greek text does. The word God is emphasized there. The only begotten God which is proof of Jesus' deity, who is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus enjoyed an intimate, experiential knowledge of God in a way that we have not yet experienced. He bore witness to that which he actually seen and heard. Do you realize Jesus actually walked the streets of heaven and then came down here to tell us what it's about? We have an eyewitness to heaven. He's back up there now physically. The word disclosed God to us. How did he do this? I don't know, but there's further elaboration here. Verse 18, it's emphatic again, he, God, i.e. the Son of God, he has explained him, meaning God the Father. In other words, Jesus, who's also God, explained God the Father. For your notes, Matthew 11:27. all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Now get ready for this part. I love it. Here's where we come in. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So you can know God too if the Son chooses to reveal him to you. And as you put your faith in him. Colossians 1:15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Uh, God's invisible, we can't see him. But Jesus was a first-century audio-visual. He came down to this earth and showed us what the Father's values are, his priorities, his expectations for us, all these things. He wrapped himself in flesh. And this is the doctrine we're celebrating during this season. Hebrews 1:3. Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Again, I can't get over it. Look at that last part, verse 18. He, Jesus, has explained him. You see the word explained there in the Greek? It's exegeted. What does that mean? Well, exegesis, to bring out the meaning of the text. And that requires an intimate acquaintance with all the nuances of the text. It it requires much time and effort. Who is more acquainted with the Father than Jesus who spent all eternity with him? As I say, you get in your time machine and go all the way back before there was a universe and there was just one community, the triune community, Father, Son, and Spirit, loving each other with an infinite love. And then they invite us into that fellowship. How awesome is that? And so this Jesus, who knows the Father intimately, is saying we can know him, obviously, in a less way than him. But we can know the Father intimately as well. And it begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know him as your savior? Are you intimately, savingly related and acquainted with Jesus Christ? Are we putting in the time and effort, Christian? In the word of God, in prayer, this is how we get to know him. Jesus made the effort to disclose God to us. How well do we know him? You See, the word became flesh and we're asking what are the effects of the word becoming flesh. Well, we've seen that the word dwelt among us, the word dispensed grace to us, and the word disclosed God to us. The word became flesh. And so I have to ask the question, how do we respond? Something so awesome demands a response, is worthy of response. Very simply, we respond by bearing witness to the word. Bear witness to the word. Look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You see, John's ministry aroused intense interest. The crowds were growing. And since his audience was growing, the Sanhedrin, we could call them the religious Supreme Court, you might say. They decided to investigate who is this upstart? Why is he taking away our crowds? Many people thought that John was the Christ, but that thought disturbed John. It really disturbed him that such a lofty title should be pinned on him. And so he denies emphatically, I, on my part, am not the Christ. Verse 21. They asked, Well, what then? If you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. All right, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now look at those questions there. Are you Elijah? Why would they ask that? Well, John appeared in the wilderness as Elijah did. He dressed as Elijah did. He proclaimed judgment and repentance as Elijah did. And yet, John is saying, no, I'm not Elijah. He says, I am not. I may be a type of Elijah, but I'm not literally Elijah. Are you the prophet? By the way, for your notes, that comes from uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. This is what they're referring to. It reads like this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, the Jews saw this prophet of Deuteronomy as separate from the Messiah. Christians today would say this is the Messiah. This prophet in Deuteronomy 18, 15 refers to to Jesus the Messiah. That would be the Christian view. Verse 22. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. This is a loose translation of Isaiah 40, verse 3. So the picture is of removing obstacles in order to build a king's highway in the wilderness." This is really an earnest invitation to to repent. Now notice that John, as humble as he is, says he's only a voice. And by the way, that's all you and I are. We're just a voice. And if anything good happens as we share the gospel and witness to the word, that's the doing of the Holy Spirit. We're just the mouthpiece, right? Verse 26, in fact, uh, don't miss, the, there's a little note here in verse 24. John just throws this in free of charge. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You see, the Jews baptized heathen who had converted to Judaism. But why is John baptizing Jews? In other words, hey, John, where did you get the authority to baptize Jews? Who are you? that you are baptizing these people. Where's your authority? Let's see your credentials. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He's referring to Jesus who he's about to meet in a little bit here. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So John's basically, a certain, look, my authority to baptize comes from Christ. He comes after me chronologically. I'm a little bit older than him, but he precedes me in honor and dignity. I'm not even worthy to be considered his slave. Now, this was really a humble, Christ-centered witness. John bore witness to the word. And no wonder Jesus said, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than then John the Baptist, Matthew eleven eleven, John bore witness of the word. Are you, am I, a humble witness for the word of God, Jesus Christ? And so what have we seen here? We've seen that the word became flesh. And we're asking the question, what are the effects of the word becoming flesh? And we've learned that the word dwelt among us. The word dispensed grace to us. And the word disclosed God to us. The land of Persia, which today we would probably call Iran, uh, many years ago was once ruled by a wise and beloved Shah who cared greatly for his people, which is kind of unusual, sorry to say, for many uh, emperors and rulers. Usually it's all about them and their kingdom, right? But this man genuinely cared for his people and he desired only what was best for them. And one day he disguised himself as a poor man and he decided to visit the public baths. Now the water for the public baths was heated below by a furnace in the cellar. And so the Shah made his way down to that dark cellar to sit with the man who actually tended the fire. And the two men shared the coarse food and the Shah befriended him in his loneliness. And day after day, it's pretty impressive, this ruler went to visit that man down in the cellar. And so the worker became attached to this stranger because, in quotes, he came where he was. And one day the Shah revealed his true identity and he expected the man, as usual, to ask him for a gift because that's usually what happened. Well, instead, this man looked longing into his leader's face and he uh, had a sense of love for him over the times of their meeting. And he said to the leader, to this shah, you know, you, you left your glory and your palace to sit here with me in this dark cellar and to eat my coarse food, and you actually care about what happens to me. You know, on others, you may have bestowed rich gifts, but to me, you have given yourself. And dear friends, Jesus Christ gave us all kinds of gifts. I don't have time to list them. But most importantly, he gave us himself. When he hung on a cross, what else could he add to that as proof to how much he loves you? There's nothing he could add. That plus a thousand dollars, really? He spilled his, hear the word, infinitely precious, literally priceless blood, knowing all of our sins in advance. He did that for you and me. That's grace. That's a first century audio visual of grace that comes only from a gracious God. And my question is, do you know this loving Savior? Are you grateful for what he has done for you? As you celebrate during this season the fact that the word became flesh, are you willing to be a witness For the word a witness to the grace of jesus christ he loves us dear friend let's worship him with all that we have because he alone is the one true god let's pray lord we're overwhelmed by your love expressed in your gift of jesus to us i can't imagine you as a father what must have been going through your heart and mind as you witnessed There's not even a word, the despicable, heinous way your son was treated. But you sacrificed him and sent him down here because you love us. And Lord Jesus, knowing what you were to face, it's incredible to think that you went all the way to the cross out of love for us. You saw our desperate state and realized this is the only way, the only remedy to our desperate sin problem. We're grateful for your love. And we thank you, Lord, that through faith in Jesus, you send the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to be with us wherever we go, to convict us, to challenge us, to comfort us, to intercede on our behalf. How blessed we are. And so during this season of Advent, we choose to worship you afresh with all that we have, because it's all yours anyway, for your glory for the blessing of others, and even for our own good and spiritual health. We ask that you'll use us during this season, and we pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus and all my brothers and sisters said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.